0: Hey, first off, I want to say thanks to everybody watching, whether you're in the South Auditorium or the North Auditorium, you're watching online, watching on television. We're just so glad that you're with us this morning. Here at New Spring, we're in a series called Hope, but our graphic is kind of interesting because you can see the form of the whole word, hopeless, and the less is fading out. What is the difference between hope and hopeless? One word, and that word is change. Wherever there's hope, then we're going to have to have change. This is one reason why political leaders will utilize these two words in their slogans, because if there is no change, there is no hope. And so we're going to talk about that today, because here's the thing, there is no hope without change, and there is no change without change agents. Now many of you are familiar with that term, if you're in the corporate world or if you're in education. Um, And you can be in various enterprises, but if you are, you know the term change agent means a catalyst for change. One of my closest friends is a great business leader, uh, has been in our community, and actually his impact has been international. But for 15 years, we've been best friends and we've gone to lunch, and so many times he has quoted a statement to me that is meaningful to me and I hope is meaningful to you. He said, there is one thing leaders do above everything else, leaders drive change. Well, that's because leaders want to bring hope. And oftentimes, if an organization or institution, or especially a corporation, if it's going to change, oftentimes they have to bring in a new leader. And here is why. And this is, again, this is probably the most, at least one of the most difficult concepts I have in getting across to leadership teams. Nothing changes in an entity, whether we're talking about a family or corporation, a team, anything. Nothing changes until the culture changes. And the culture does not change until someone comes along and brings in a new point of view. Uh, I'll be real careful or else I'll accidentally tell you the story I'm talking about. There's a big story in the mall that's been in trouble for a number of years. And they tried all kinds of gymnastics to try to get themselves out of trouble. They bought this business, sold this business, brought in this team, brought in a new team. And and, and I got to tell you, I almost wince every time I go in the store to do business. Now, the problem is... Or their benefit is they actually have some products that I really like. They have some products that a lot of people like. But their culture is so bad, I wince every time I had to do business with them. Now, here's the weird thing about this. If you or I walked into their store, not even having a retail background, many of us, if you and I walked in their store, we could find 35 things that if they would correct, they would be better off. It's, it's the low-hanging fruit. And as I said, you might not have any, re- any background in retail at all, but if you walked in the store, you could say, fix that, put somebody, up, put an extra person over here. You have, you have everything, you have the product set up wrong. I mean, we could correct 35 things, but here's the problem with that. If we corrected those 35 things, they would still be the same store because their culture is still the same. If you want to think about this on an individual basis, think about why 99% of diets are unsuccessful as far as long-term weight loss. And I've been thinking on this one for a long time, and I'm still wrestling with it. It is because for a period of time we can change our behavior, but our internal culture has not changed. We still like donuts. We still like ice cream. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm saying, and, and, and this is a line that I wrote and it got tweaked and it got sent to a lot of places, or, or Eric got tweeted and sent to a lot of places. I have made the statement, you cannot tweak your way to success. And that is true. If your family needs to change, then the culture needs to change. You can change all kinds of situations a la carte, but it isn't going to change unless the culture changes. Many times I've had, back when I used to cancel, a couple sat in my office, and a woman would say to me, my husband needs to do X, and if he would do X, we would be okay. And I'm sitting back there thinking, no, your whole marriage needs a culture shift. It needs a culture change. So what happens with culture changes, when they happen, is there is an agent of change who comes in. And oftentimes it's someone who comes in with a new point of view. Well, I really want to say this to each of us here today. Our world and our nation needs change agents. We desperately need them. I don't know what you see when you see body politic in the United States, but it looks, it's sad to me. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking I don't see a whole lot of light there. I mean, when I look at our economy here today, we're supposed to be in a recovery, and it's like there's not a whole lot that encourages me. And when, but those are just the minor things. When I look at the state of relationships and families in America, I'm like, wow, if we ever needed change agents, the time for that is now. So I just want to say you're needed, and you're needed to be a change agent. If you're in a family, your family needs you. I mean, and there, on top of this, if you don't care, you could be 15 years old here today, but somebody is looking at you, and somebody needs you to be a change agent, somebody to step in and change the culture that ultimately will bring hope. Well, in the Bible, we get, we're going to get taken to school by one of my favorite change agents in Scripture, and she is perhaps the least likely person that we would ever expect to drive significant change in the family of God, and yet she is a magnificent change agent, so much so that one of the two books in the Bible that are named after a female is named after her. Her name is Ruth, and I don't care if you're the lead partner of a law firm. I don't care if you're uh, the person who is the CEO. Ruth is going to take you and me to school on what it means to be a change agent. It's going to feel like drinking from a fire hose today, but we're going to see four things that are absolutely essential for everybody who desires and craves to be a, a change agent. Now, here's the thing. Before I get into those four things, I want to take you to the book of Ruth, and I want to show you one phrase or one clause on which the whole story changes, because this is so important. If we're going to understand Ruth and why she was a successful change agent, you're going to have to see that Ruth makes one statement that changes the entire trajectory of this book, because last week, if you were here in chapter one, everything was bad. I mean, I, I wasn't a fun sermon for me. I went home and thought, my goodness, I want to crawl in a hole. Because four times I had to tell you this lousy story, and we asked the question, why do good people make bad decisions? If you were here, you know that there's this Jewish family, and in a bad time, they sell out. They sell their land, their historic land that belonged to them from their family. They cashed out, and they decided to move to this place called Moab. Oh, Moab's the worst place you could live. Every bad thing you can imagine goes on in Moab. It's an unhealthy place to live. But they're making money down there. Oh, did I mention this, that they have a religion? They have a national god called Chemosh, which is just really this image with this huge hollowed-out belly that was an oven that they kept stoked and fired all the time because if people felt like things weren't going right. Maybe they need to burn one of their kids alive. Oh, that's Moab. And we, we asked the question, how could a good family like Elimelech, who was a nice guy, he was the dad, and his wife, Naomi, who was a good-looking woman, and we said even, you know, she could have been Mrs. Judah, you know, she could have won the pageant. I mean, her name means attractive. And they got two boys, Malon and Kilion. And, I mean, you know, Elimelech cashes out, and he takes the money, and he goes to Moab. And while he's there, the boys grow up, and they get married to a couple of Moabite girls. One is named Orpa, and the other one is named... Are you ready for this Ruth you see what I'm saying she's the last person in the world you would expect to be a change agent because this this good family is going the wrong direction going to a bad place and the kids get married and they get, they marry girls from there and it's like everything in this thing is bad until Ruth makes one statement well by the time this statement is made Elimelech dies the two boys each die, and now all that's left is Naomi, but she's not beautiful anymore. She's worn and haggard and feels ugly and angry and bitter. And she's got these two daughters, daughters in law, Orpah and Ruth, and and let me ask you a question. Have you ever known anybody give up with attitude? You know, it's like they're throwing in a towel, but boy, I mean, they're they're angry that they're having to do it. And that's Naomi. And she's, and I'm not blaming her. She's been to a lot of funerals. But Naomi's like, Yeah, I'm going back to Judah. God has like really messed me up. And, but I'm going home. And her daughters in law, I mean, they're saying, We'll go with you. You know, whatever. So Naomi's walking a little ways and she starts thinking about this. You would too. Man, I'm going to go back home. We don't have any place to go back to. We don't have any money. We're dead broke. And I'm going to go back there, and they're going to see me, and they're going to say, is this Naomi? I mean, is this the beautiful woman? What happened to her? Where's, the, where's her husband? Where's her boys? And what's the deal with the two Malbite girls? So Naomi stops, and she says to the two girls, you know, you need to go back home. Just, just, just go back home. And, and, and this is how upset she was. She said, listen. Being connected to me is not going to help you. I don't don't have any more sons for you to marry. If, If I were to get married today, sleep with my husband, get pregnant tonight, you're not going to wait for him to grow up. So go back home because I can't do you any good anymore. And at that moment, Orpah says, okay. Well, I'm walking you right up to the phrase that Ruth is going to say that is gonna change the trajectory of this book because everything until that moment is down. And Ruth is going to make one statement, and after that, everything is going to be up. And this is going to turn into a love story, and it's going to turn into a story of redemption, and then it's going to turn into one of the most exciting stories in the Bible because change agent Ruth is going to step into this awful situation where her husband's dead, her brother-in-law's dead, her father's dead, and she doesn't know anything but bad in Moab, and her mother-in-law is no help because she's freaked out And checking out on life, and yet Ruth is going to step in, and she's going to make one statement. It's going to all turn around. You ready for it? Look at the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Man, in the old days, they used to use this in weddings. (laughs) Ruth 1, 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people And back to her gods. Now, you and I know what worshiping her gods means. You should do the same. And like we said last week, are you kidding me? I mean, Naomi, who loves her daughter-in-law, is telling her to go back to her gods where they burn babies alive? Well, nothing is messed up as an angry, bitter Christian. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Are you ready for this? This is the line on which the book of Ruth changes trajectories. Your God will be my God. After this statement, this book turns because we are brought face to face with a change agent. See, Ruth is not just somebody who wants to have a better life for herself. Ruth is somebody who wants to change the trajectory not only of her lives, but the lives of all the people that she loves. Ruth said, don't don't ask me to turn back. Your God will be my God. Verse 17, wherever you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. And when Naomi saw there was no talking her out of it, Naomi said, all right, I guess we'll go home. Now, when I explore the life of this hero of mine, I mean, honestly, there are so many people I want to meet when I get to heaven. I cannot wait to meet Ruth. She's a legend. She's a change agent. There are four things that I see, and honestly, I would love to have 12 hours to do a seminar with you on these, on these four things, but I've only got about 22 minutes and 40, 40 seconds. So, I'm, it's gonna be like drinking out of a fire hose, but I wanna tell you something. I, I, whatever your situation is, whether you just, you're in a family or you, you're a leader of a team, a leader of organization, commander of a squadron, or you're the lead partner at a law firm, whatever it is that you do, CEO of a company, small business owner, you're going to walk out of here today understanding the four most important things that are absolutely vital if you want to change cultures and eventually bring hope to people. And here's the first one. First one's so big. However far you had to drive, the first one's worth it. Number one, it is a sense that what's normal isn't right. See, here's the thing. If, if someone were to meet us on the street and ask us, what is, how, do you, how do you determine what's right and what's wrong? If, if, we have, if we have faith in God, which almost all of us do, we would say, well, our God tells me what's right and what's wrong. If a person was not a God follower or a believer in God, they would typically say, well, I have a creed or I have a, I have a sense of, of there's a certain group of things that I believe are right and wrong. I'm going to tell you something. I don't think that's 99% of us. I mean, those things may speak into it, but here is the thing. I think for most of us our right and wrong comes from what is normal to us. And I'll give you an innocent illustration of this. You see a couple get married and they're just like in love and you know and it's almost sickening to watch them together <laughs> until they come to their first christmas. And the guys like getting ready for christmas and the gals like ready getting ready for christmas and the guy starts noticing she's doing it all wrong. I mean it's just backward. And he goes to her and says, why is it you're, you're celebrating Christmas all wrong? And she's saying, well, this is how my family did it. And he's saying, but your family did it all wrong. And Well, what makes you know it's all wrong? Because my family did it this way. See, normal is to determine what's right. Now, that's innocent. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Let me tell you this. I've seen it get real serious. I've seen adults who had anger issues and asked them, why you have the anger issue, and they say, well, it's because it's how I grew up. And I'm saying, well, were you happy with your father who had the anger issue? No, I haven't spoken to him in years. Why? Because he's got anger issues. But you have anger issues. Well, it's just what I know. What's normal becomes what's right. I mean, I, I talk to college students. I mean, they're, they're going to parties, and they're getting drunk out of their mind and putting themselves in vulnerable positions. And I'm asking them, why would you do such a thing that's so dangerous? Well, it's like, what, just part of being a freshman. And on and on it goes. I mean, I've even seen people who were abusers who grew up with abuse. And they hated the abuse, but the problem is it was normal to them. See, all of us have this in all different areas of our life. It's like, what's normal to me feels right because it's normal. And that's the reason why businesses and corporations and teams keep doing the same dumb stuff and anybody else who's unrelated could walk in and instantly see all kinds of things that are wrong. But the problem is this business, this culture won't change because to them it's right. I don't have the time to go into this, but one of my favorite um, stories about business changes was when Alan Mulally took over Ford Motor Company. Well, Alan grew up in Kansas I helped him a whole lot. I've often believed Kansans have a sense of practicality that serves us well. But Alan was at Boeing, and, and Ford Motor Company was going broke for 40 years. And, and so they, they just like, did a wild card and pulled Alan Mullally in to be CEO in 2006. And at first, there was a lot of resentment of him because Ford had all kinds of internal problems, they had cultural issues. They had silos, and people protected their turf, and, and there were turf wars, and they would have meetings that lasted forever, but no decision would be made. They'd make the decisions away from the meeting, and, and, and nobody could admit they had a problem about anything. Well, Alan Mulally steps into that, and he begins to talk about culture change. And the guys that are there were saying, like, we just don't know that you really get the car business. And so he said something, and I love this, all of you who come from aircraft industry. Malali said, well, let me see if I get this. You you make a a product that has 3,000 moving parts, and I come from a business that makes a product that has 30,000 moving parts, and it has to fly. I think I get your business. (laughs) But my favorite Malali story is, in the early days... He, he took the top engineers to the testing grounds, the proving grounds at Consumer Reports. Now, if you know anything about Consumer Reports, you know they don't take any advertising money so that they can give an objective evaluation of products. And automobiles is probably their, their number one thing. So he takes, he takes his top engineers to the testing grounds at Consumer Reports. And, and the guy who's there from Consumer Reports, Malali asked him, he says, tell me what you think of Ford. He said, I wouldn't buy one. And when he asked them why, then he gets very blunt, and he starts telling them all the problems with Ford. And all the executives begin to argue with him to tell him everything they were doing was right. And Malali said, I didn't bring you here to talk. I brought you here to listen. And I really believe that that's where it begins. When we get to the place where we say it may be normal, it may be business as usual, but it's wrong. Do, do you see what Naomi was telling Ruth She was saying to Ruth, go back to Moab because it is what is normal for you. And Ruth is saying, don't send me back there because what's normal... Is wrong. And I think that Ruth was saying, it hasn't done my people any good, and it sure didn't do your family any good. Listen, here's the statement that Ruth was making, and I think it's the same statement that anyone makes when they come to Jesus Christ. Ruth was saying, don't send me back to normal. Take me to right. I want to go to what's right. Don't let me go back to normal because normal is wrong. Do you feel that today? If you want to bring change to your family, you've got to have the boldness to step up and say, it may be normal, it may be the way we've always done things, but normal isn't right. <laughs> you know how it is when we fly into big cities. A lot of times we won't even use the name of the city. We'll, we'll, we'll call the name of the airport, right? You know, If you're flying commercial in Chicago, you're really flying into O'Hare, yeah. Do you know O'Hare's not even named after a I mean, O'Hare's named after a guy that never lived in Chicago? Do you know that? <laughs> it's true. Butch O'Hare, World War II hero, and this, I got to tell the story quickly because time's, like I said, I'd like to have twelve hours to do this talk. Butch O'Hare um, was on a carrier as a pilot in the early days of World War II when we were losing the war to the Japanese in the South Pacific, and. Um, the Japanese, was, they were like encroaching on Australia. They got really close to it. And so they sent a fleet of ships as a task force uh, to the area to engage the Japanese. And the Japanese, when they got close, they sent out a, 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 well, actually 18 bombers. But the first wave, there were only nine. And so when the Americans scrambled their, their fighter planes, they, they thought that they were engaging all the Japanese bombers when in reality they were only engaging half of them. And then the Japanese sent out the second wave, and all the American pilots were out engaging that first wave. And the only pilots that were left were Butch O'Hare and his wingman. But when they test fired their machine guns, the wingman's machine guns wouldn't operate. So now it's just Butch O'Hare and the fleet. And you can imagine how much damage nine Japanese bombers could do to this sitting duck fleet out there. And the only plane in between them and disaster is Butch O'Hare. And so he dives his American plane right into the formation, and he just begins to shoot one after the other. And he, depending upon whose history you read, he either shot three or five planes down. But the Japanese pilots got so disoriented that they just gave up and went back, and the fleet was saved. And he got the Medal of Honor, and he came back to the United States. Roosevelt met with him. They gave him a parade, but he didn't like being a hero. He went back, back into active service in '43. He got lost. He died. And that's how we named Chicago Airport, O'Hare Airport, for Butch O'Hare. You know what's strange about that? He wasn't the most famous O'Hare in Chicago. His daddy had been an attorney, but after he passed the bar exam, he discovered he could make a whole lot more money in organized crime than he could make practicing law, Honestly. So he got into racing and he made a fortune and he built a house that was so big that it had an indoor skating rink and an indoor swimming pool. And then when he moved to Chicago, he got in with Al Capone and he became Al Capone's partner. I mean, he was involved in gangsterism at the up highest level. I mean, he was their business manager. He was their, he, he was their lawyer. I mean, he, and he was op, doing operations for Al Capone. He, he called him Easy Eddie. Easy Eddie O'Hare. One day, Eddie O'Hare looked up, and the only redeeming thing in his life was his teenage boy, Butch. And he saw him there, and he said, you know, I don't want my son to grow up with the easy. I don't want him to grow up as easy Butch O'Hare. And the only thing he could do was to, you know, he got a friend who was in journalism in St. Louis, and he sat down and met with the Fed, and he said, I can give you all the goods on Al Capone. And if you know gangster history, you know that Al Capone didn't go to prison for all the murders he committed. He went to prison for... Income tax evasion, that's right. So Easy Eddie went in and said, I can decode the books for you and I can show you his financial partner and who to look at. And Al Capone and his gang went to jail, many of them, on the testimony of Easy Eddie O'Hare. You can predict what happened. Eddie O'Hare was driving his new Lincoln Zephyr down the streets of Chicago, and a couple of guys drove up beside him and put a couple of slugs in his head, and he died. But I'm just saying, that's what you got to do if you want to change the culture. You got to say, you know what? It may be normal, but it isn't right, and it's not working for me. And if, it's, if I'm going to change it, I'm going to have to step in and do the difficult thing. I got 12 minutes and 36 seconds to give you the next three points, okay? (laughs) Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. It's not enough to just say what's normal isn't right. You're going to have to step into the difficulty. You know what? Anytime you come to to Christ, you have three possibilities. The first possibility is you can run away from it. Or number two, you can do the American thing, which is to stay at a self-distance and often offer commentary, That's what we Americans love to do. We'll stay safely apart. And I'm going to tell everybody else what they should do. Third thing you can choose to do is you can enter in. You can basically say, I am going to yoke my situation with the crisis so that if the operation goes down, I go down with it. Let me show you what Ruth said, and you'll see this very, very clearly in the text, okay? Naomi says to Ruth, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Now, that may not sound like a whole lot to us, but you've got to remember Ruth's in Moabite. And she's going to go back to a people who hate her. I mean, the Jewish people have been trained, basically, that the Moabite people are bad. And you know how it is. A lot of times, if you're part of a bad story, people feel like they have a reason to reject you. And so it would have been the easiest thing in the world for... Ruth to stay in Moab where she was comfortable, but she said, you know, what's normal isn't right. And so the only way I can help, my mother-in-law's in no shape to do anything. She's incapacitated by our grief and bitterness. So Ruth is saying, you know what? Your people will be my people. I am, ready for this, I am stepping in. When I think about the people that I know about who have stepped in, the person I guess I think about the most is Mother Teresa. You know, you think about there were the lepers in Calcutta. I don't know about you, but I'd want to run away from that. Leprosy is an awful disease. And instead, not only did she help them, she moved in and lived among them. There are many quotes of Mother Teresa's that I like, but this is my favorite. She said, I try to give to the poor people for love what the rich could get for money. No, she said, I wouldn't touch a leper for a 1,000 pounds, but I would cure him for the love of God. What's she saying? It's a statement that I make to my staff all the time. You can't do anything significant without getting your hands dirty. See, a lot of people want to make change, but they don't want to get involved. They don't want to get engaged. They don't actually want to become part of the situation. They want to step back and just be purely a consultant. But the only way to bring long-term change, be a change agent that actually impacts the culture is to get your hands dirty. Now, there's one exception, and I want to make sure everybody gets this exception. I'm not talking about marriage because there's somebody out there who could say, okay, Mark, I'm dating a guy who's a total jerk. He doesn't have a job, doesn't treat me well, but I guess I should step in. No, no, no. Marriage is not that way. That's an equal partnership. I'm just saying, stepping in. Somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't see any benefit. I mean, I'm I'm in a safe place right now. Why should I leave the safety of my situation and yoke up with people that are in difficult situations? Well, if you believe in God, listen to this. In Isaiah 58, the Bible says, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in such sun-scorched land. Basically, God is saying this. Look, if you will engage yourself in helping people who are suffering, God is saying, all that time that you're busy and vulnerable taking care of them, God is saying, I'll just make your needs a primary concern of mine. Number three. After you say what's normal isn't right and I'm stepping in, here is a huge one. Oh, gosh. This is so big. You've got to take the first available right step. Being a leader for years of a church, being president of organizations, sitting on boards of other organizations that needed change, I have come to believe, and then talking to leaders in other worlds, I've come to believe that you won't ever need to make huge systematic change where you can see The finish line when you start. This is what keeps most Americans from being change agents. (laughs) We have short attention spans that were developed in two-hour movies, and hour-long dramas on television, and 30-minute sitcoms, and 60-second commercials, where whoever the problem is, it resolves quickly. And I think Americans look at the situation and say, if there's not this magic step, where I can take this one step and get exactly where I need to go, then how am I going to make change? Every situation I've been part of where there had to be seismic change, I've discovered that when you take that first step, you're going to have people in your life who are going to say, how is that going to get you where you need to go? And your only answer is, look, it's the only step available to me. It is the first right step, and so I'm going to take it. Whether it gets me where I need to go or not, I don't know. Let me show you this in the life of Ruth. This is so cool. Ruth is now back home. They have no land. They have no property. They have no money. They have no way of making any money. Naomi is going crazy, and Ruth is looking at this saying, we've got to have dinner somehow. Now, Ruth dreams big. We'll get to that in point four, but I'll set that aside for a moment. Ruth is looking around. How are they going to eat? it's barley harvest time. And the, the way the Jewish world worked, and it was, this was God's instructions to them, when they harvested their grain, they would drop stalks. And God was saying, look, if you drop a stalk, don't pick it up. And he told them not to harvest the corners of the field. This is for poor people, so that they could go into the fields and pick up what was left over and, and, and basically harvest the corners of the field. And that way they wouldn't starve to death. And so Ruth, check this out, and look at chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth said, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Well, you know what? If we were talking to her, we would say, Ruth, what what do you want out of life? I'd like to get married. I'd like to have family. I'd like to be a success. I'd like for my life to matter. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go to the fields, and I'm going to pick up grain that's left over. Now, you and I are going to ask her, how is that going to get you where you need to go. Look, I'm talking to a lot of people here today who have great dreams for your life, and you can't see the finish line, but you have a first available right step. Listen, here's the thing. Some of you want to be a doctor, but you're in community college. You know what you need to do? You need to go to class. (laughs) If you're borrowing money, you really need to go to class. See what I'm saying? I mean, take the first available right step. Don't dream fantasize about when I get there, take the first available right step. Somebody could say, well, how is this going to help you, Ruth? I mean, you're going to go pick up grain. What if you get chased off? What if they don't like you? What if they yell at you, call you names for being a mobite? And Ruth's just saying, I don't know. It's the first available right step. I'm going to take it. You know what? It worked. When she's picking up grain in the field, she's gonna meet Boaz. He's Prince Charming, gonna meet that next week. He, he, he's handsome and attractive, and, and he was a good guy, the right kind of guy, and he falls head over heels in love with her. They're gonna get married, they're gonna have a family, they're gonna have a baby, they're gonna have a grandson. That great grandson's gonna turn out to be King David. A few generations later, their great great grandson is gonna turn out to be Jesus Christ. It all started in the fields. Take the first available right step. Don't set on, on your bottom. Get off of it. Take the first available right step. Don't sit on your couch eating ding-dongs, dreaming about what you would like to be. Take the first right step. This is something I don't hear in America anymore, and I especially don't see it in entertainment. Listen, if you truly want to be a change agent, people have to listen to you. And I know... What I'm going to say could be argued with, but here's the thing. People don't listen to you because you have a title. People don't listen to you because you have a string of degrees, although those are all good things. People are not going to listen to you because you're attractive. There is only one reason why people listen to you. You have to be a person worth listening to, and the only way to be a person worth listening to is you have to earn respect, And respect is earned by taking available right steps and paying the price of doing that. And if you will do that, you may not be George Clooney. You may not look like George Clooney. You know, you may not have Bill Gates' money, but people will listen to you because you will have earned the respect. Let me show you this in the case of Ruth. Because, see, Ruth goes to glean in Boaz's field, and she's noticing Boaz is kind of like being good to her. And so she asks him, what have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. Now, listen to Boaz's answer. He could have said, because you're a hottie. I think she was. (laughs) But listen to Boaz's response and see if you can't pick up the first three points of our message. I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband you entered in. Mm-hmm. And I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. Normal wasn't right. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. You've now taken the first step. So the Bible says when Ruth, and this is Boaz talking about her after she leaves, When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. And a lot of people, this was their favorite line from the book of Ruth. And pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. And this guy's followed for her. (laughs) And he said, don't give her a hard time. Why? Because she earned his respect. How is respect earned? Taking the first available right step." every time, then take the next available right step. That's how change agents change. Number four, I have one minute, 47 seconds. Number four. Remember number one, it's what's normal isn't right. Number two, stepping in. Number three, take the first available right step. Number four, dream, dreaming, what never was. Now this, this statement comes from one of my favorite little couplets. Um, George Bernard Shaw is the person who said it originally but most of us know what Bobby Kennedy did to it because I think Bobby Kennedy made it better it's a statement that Bobby made a lot when he was running for president in 1968 and then when Bobby was killed in California his brother Teddy said it at Bobby's funeral here it is you ready most men see things as they are and ask why I dream things that never were, and ask why not. That is Ruth. See, the things that Ruth dreams, she's never seen. She's from Moab. Hey, good things did not happen down there, and she sure didn't learn it from the family that she married into because they were a wreck. You understand, Ruth, Ruth has never seen anything good. But she dreams things that never were. And that makes her an optimist. I've never met a change agent yet who wasn't an optimist. And here's the thing about optimists: they are contagious. You remember how messed up Naomi was, mad at God, angry at God, bitter, checking out on life, giving up, but giving up with attitude. Well, Ruth comes home with a basket full of grain because after all, Boaz's bunch has been dropping stuff on purpose for her, and she shakes it all out and comes back with a basket. And Naomi said, Hmm, that isn't ordinary. What happened to you today? She said, Well, I was in the field of a guy named Boaz, and he was very good to me. And Naomi starts thinking, You know, Boaz, he's qualified to marry you. And he's a, he's a, you know, this thing may turn around. And Naomi says something that I really love. I don't have time to read to you. Naomi says, You know, I guess God hasn't still, God hasn't quit working with us. Do you understand this is a Moabite girl that only knows the Moabite way of life who comes back home, says what's normal isn't right, steps in, not just leans in, but steps in and does the first right step. And then God blesses her and her optimism actually transforms her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law is saying, well, you know what? I guess God hasn't given up on us yet. Now, New Spring, I only have like a couple more minutes, but please don't leave me now because this is big. I could talk about dreaming big in an entirely secular audience, and they would say, oh, yeah, I love dreaming big. But you've got to understand something. Dreaming big is just a waste of time and fantasy if your dreams don't have substance to them and underpinning. There are a lot of people that dream about a lot of stuff that's never going to happen in their lives because there's no underpinning. Why does Ruth believe in things she's never seen? if we could stick a microphone in Ruth's face and we could ask her that question her story tells us the answer she would say you know when i chose my god i developed a viewpoint that was commensurate with his size i chose a big god not a hollowed out oven where people drop their babies i chose the God of heaven and earth. And when I chose my God, I chose a viewpoint that was the size he is. See, the problem with many of us, we say God is our God, but we're really our own gods. I mean, theologically, God is our God, but we, we look to ourselves. What can we do? What can we talk other people into doing? There's the parameters. There's the boundary line. Or we believe in technology, and so we get to the edge of technology, and our, our, our technology crashes or the grid goes down. We reach the end of our capabilities. But if you pick the God of heaven, he is an infinite God. And there are no boundaries to his capabilities. There are no ends to what he can do. And Ruth is just saying, I can dream of things that never were. Because when I picked my God, I developed a viewpoint that was as big as he is. And that is how you become a change agent. That's how you do it. What's normal isn't right. I'm stepping in, I'm taking the first available right step, and then I'm dreaming things that never were. <laughs> Whether you're the lead partner of a law firm or you're the pastor of a church, those things will work. The ultimate change agent, of course, is Jesus Christ. Boy, he, he, you see, here's the thing. You know, what, you know what we say when we accept Christ? We say, don't send me back to normal, take me to right. Normal's broken, take me to right. And then he comes into our lives and he changes what we can't change. He changes our culture. And the Bible tells us that anybody who asks, anyone who's willing to believe on him as Savior, like Ruth, if you choose him, you choose choose Jesus, and you can develop a viewpoint commensurate with how wonderful he is. You say, Mark, I don't know how to do that. Well, I'm going to do something now. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to join me in this prayer, you can. But basically, you're just inviting the change agent of heaven to come into your life. You ready? Dear God, I'm a sinner normal is very ugly it's not right but I believe you love me I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins he he stepped in I believe he arose from the grave would you forgive me and make me your child take me to ride Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, have a gift I wanna give you. When you walk out, there are guest services around the concourse, you'll see them by the signs. The gift has a, a DVD, a book I wrote, and a coupon for a new Bible. All you gotta do is say, I pray with Mark. They won't hassle you, just like Boaz told people not to hassle Ruth. They will not bother you, they'll give you this. Next week, we do Prince Charming. See you very soon.